um, in, the, uh, in the early 1970s or 1973. Then uh, the costly defeat and withdrawal from Vietnam in 1975. Then in 1980s, you saw a whole bunch of anxieties of uh, imperial overstretch. So when I was a student in the 1990s, uh, we were still reading Paul Kennedy's 1987 Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which argue that throughout history, countries that appear to be at the peak of their power are almost always already far along in their decline. Why? Because they overinvest in military force and neglect economic and political renewal. Uh, the U.S. in the late 1980s was experiencing self-doubt uh, about its ability to compete with Japan. So this was known as the emerging Japanese superstate, basically led to all kinds of anxieties about Japanese takeover in the 1980s. If you look at uh, some of the public opinion data, that actually was a blip ever since the end of the Cold War. The, the, the Americans, the respondents to Gallup polls, did not really care much about uh, Japan or the Japanese, but in, in, in that period, 19, late 1980s, it was a big deal. Um, why? Because it seemed that its economic model, based on industrial policy and cross-shareholding among large conglomerates, was often seen as superior to the American model. Um, so this was something also I discussed as an undergrad in a class by Michael Donnelly at the University of Toronto. We, was on Japanese politics. And by, by the time I took it, this was 1978, um, we, we were looking at it historically as sort of, oh, well, how, how was it possible for so many people to be so wrong about said emerging Japanese superstate? Uh, so the point is that we've gone through a whole bunch of decline scares before, and the United States has actually gone from strength to strength. So why? Because at the end of the Cold War ushered in the so-called unipolar moment, uh, and that halted certain prognostications of declinism, but only for a while. So fast forward to when I was a graduate student in the 2000s, uh, say December 2004, and we were having a very different debate. Uh, U.S. was in Iraq, American soldiers were dying and fighting and trying in the streets of Fallujah while they were trying to level it. And at that time, U.S. federal government's own National Intelligence Council published a report. They published them every year. Uh, and at that time, so 2004, they said, by 2020, uh, the rise of new powers, new challenges to governance, and a more pervasive sense of insecurity uh, will be the order of the day. Four years later, under Barack Obama's, or just as the Obama administration was moving the White House, the same organization reported on the emergence of a global multipolar system by 2025. So if you're interested in, in some of these uh, foresight uh, kind of moments, do read the current National Intelligence Council, published uh, in April 2021, uh, that foresaw us a world, uh, foresees a world in 2040. It's very interesting. I won't tell you what it says, but check it out. So we, we see that a U.S. Uh, experts, U.S. official and officious discourse was very much talking about multipolar, multipolarity, different world in the mid-2000s. And, and Cooley and Exxon build on this, and they're saying that, well, this time is different for two main reasons. One, you have China and Russia. Two, 
you have a whole bunch of countries as diverse as Turkey, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Morocco, etc., who have recently become influential uh, regional powers in their own right. And so you also have smaller powers, smaller states, Djibouti, right, Montenegro, who now have options they never had before. They could, they, they could actually ignore European or American preferences or even opt out of the U.S.-led order altogether by choosing China's Belt and Road uh, Initiative uh, projects, for example. So this never happened before. And, and their argument is, well, um, because of processes like this, so be these different exits going on at the same time. Uh, and America's own failed management, namely under Trump, uh, but not just Trump, uh, American hegemony is not coming back. And Washington will need to accommodate other powers to a much greater extent than uh, it, it, it is used to. And so that's the argument. We'll be going through it, its components throughout the course, kind of taking it apart, putting it all back together, and so on. But for this lecture, I really wanted to focus on one potential problem with the book. Uh, and that's the, the fact that the two authors are really international security experts. They're not international political economy experts. That's why I, I signed for today um, as Forum uh, in International Studies Perspectives, or rather a symposium on, uh, on global monetary order and the liberal order debate. And it, it, it involves uh, IP scholars such as Carla Norloff, who's at the University of Toronto, Paul Post, who's at the University of Chicago, Benjamin Cohen, Sabrina Croteau, Ashna Khanna, Daniel McDowell, Hongying Wang, and Kindred Weinkoff. They all have slightly different perspectives on uh, the so-called liberal order debate, so-called relative decline of the United States. And the majority view is that, hold on, international security folks are seeing one thing, but we are seeing an another thing, which is that the, the decline is happening, yes, but American, uh, the American system is still very resilient. And this, my friends, has to do uh, with this, something called U.S. dollar hegemony. Uh, and so that's what I want to discuss briefly uh, with you. And now is a good moment to do so because what we're seeing uh, this spring are efforts by China and Russia to devise alternatives to the dollar-centered financial system. If these alternatives gain significant international traction, we would be witnessing what is potentially a cataclysmic moment in the history of hegemony, an actual decline. If these alternatives fail, then currency unipolarity uh, will continue. And no currency, not even the euro, has ever come close to reveling the scale of U.S. dollar use around the world. We know that. Actually, the last currency that made a claim as a global currency that could have counterfactually uh, upset American dominance, the dollar hegemony, was the pound sterling. But that ended in the 1950s and ended with the Suez War. I mean, I say counterfactually because there was a potential for it. Uh, to rival the U.S., but it never really, it was actually a very, very low chance of that happening for, for reasons that are interesting from a historical perspective. So, 
IP folks would say the U.S. Uh, dollar hegemony is stable for many reasons, but primarily due to the United States' financial centrality and ability to secure investments. Um, so when China and Russia are talking about de-dollarization, renminbi digitalization, alternative financial settlement and messaging systems, that's all great, but none of this is uh, very likely to kick uh, the dollar to the curb, right? And so, so let's look at that slightly, if we can. Well, Cooley and Exxon, I should say, they actually mentioned some of this. Uh, they say that the future of the American hegemonic system also depends on the dollar dominance, uh, dollar's dominance in the global monetary and financial system. I mean, they're well aware. They mentioned SWIFT. We have, many of you have used SWIFT, the Brussels-based wire transfer systems. Uh, and we know, and in fact, the textbook explains that the American authorities sometimes pressure to exclude certain banks, certain foreign banks and firms from global financial flows. Right. So that they mention it. What they uh, what they what remains underexplored in the book is uh, the conditions under which uh, there would be some kind of collapse uh, of U.S. position as the go to provider, go to provider of global liquidity. Right. Or how the euro or, or renminbi or yuan uh, could achieve parity with the dollar as the go to reserve currency, right? Could there be a coalition of the willing, right? Uh, between Russia and China and, Ru you know, Brussels. This is the Macron vision of the European Union in, in the future great power rivalry. Maybe they could, you, they could, you could have some kind of tripod um, in the old world, of, you know, rivaling uh, U.S. Uh, hegemony uh, over the long term. Maybe. It's unlikely, let's say, IP scholars. Uh, yes, we should recognize also that frustration with the system's uh, inequities is a long one, long-standing one. So uh, French finance minister Giscard d'Estaing in the 1960s called this United States' exorbitant privilege. The British international political economy scholar Susan Strange in the 1980s called it the super exorbitant privilege. Um, the U.S. does have macroeconomic perks uh, because it serves as a financial hub, right? Um, that allows it to practice something called dollar deterrence. Uh, U.S. government's ability to threaten or deny foreigners access to dollar clearing and therefore to dollar settlement. And they've done this, right, many times. Uh, in fact, what we are seeing uh, this year, this spring, uh, are efforts by Washington to broaden financial sanctions against China while simultaneously promising to prolong Ukraine sanctions on Russia and impose further ones for election interference, uh, the poisoning of opposition leader Alexei Navalny and, and the so-called solar winds hack. I mean, you can all look it up, uh, you know, under Navalny sanctions and you understand uh, what, uh, you know, how U.S. dollar deterrence works. And we've seen these examples throughout. This is not new, especially we in Canada have seen it. So how do, you know we can we can think about it uh, theoretically or empirically? U U.S. dollar transactions are either clear through the Federal Reserve or through U.S. financial institutions. So which means that foreigners depend on you on the U.S. financial infrastructure when settling dollar transactions. But the United States has the power to turn the tap off and on, right? So foreign banks funding um, can be turned off. 
uh, and that can inflict significant costs on those who evade compliance uh, with U.S. sanctions, right? Because the U.S. in this case has a, a, a very long extraterritorial reach. Um, so Iran, for example, has been a ta target not of sanctions, but also of financial sanctions. And we in Canada know all, know all about that because we're now involved in a, in a geopolitical feud with China over sanctions on Iran. Um, so U.S. Uh, has an advantage because other countries have significant U.S. dollar holdings. So China, because it has, it has a lot of U.S. dollars, uh, uh, is particularly vulnerable to dollar deterrence. If China cannot access dollars, this could jeopardize the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. Um, the latest uh, political rift involving China uh, and and the United States is over human rights uh, uh, in in Xinjiang, uh, involving mostly Muslim majority Uyghurs. Right. So when we talk about genocide or cultural genocide, well, there is a price. There, there's a cost that the that the U.S. can impose on China through financial institutions. In fact, this thing happened right after U.S. State Secretary Anthony Blinken met with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi on March 18th, 2021. So in, on, in the case of Russia, you see the same thing just under the rubric Navalny. Um, this obviously is upsetting Russia and China, and they have vowed to jointly de-dollarize, meaning create alternatives to the current system with a three-step plan. Uh, and this all began a few years ago, but now it's again in the news. So let's look at it. First, both countries began to cut back proportion of their bi bilateral trade invoiced in dollars, privileging settlements in their own currencies. That's one. Two, they sought they have sought to boost uh, their, their Mimbi's role as an international currency for payments and reserves, right? So China is encouraging this, has been for a while. It's, it's given more than 30 countries renminbi access through bilateral swap agreements. China and Russia scaled back their U.S. Treasury holdings with Russia channeling cash into renminbi holdings. So Russia is now buying Chinese Treasury, so to speak. China has ramped up the digital currency drive uh, with the goal of making it easier to hold renminbi uh, around the world. And the third... Third effort or third step in the joint Sino-Russian strategy uh, is to create alternative payments and messaging systems, allowing countries to use home and partner currencies instead of dollars uh, when they're settling trade and investment deals. So, an alternative to SWIFT, the Belgium-based uh, organization that you know essentially the U.S. Uh, controls. Um, American, meaning American authorities can sometimes pressure to exclude, exclude certain foreign banks and firms from global financial uh, flows. This strategy has limits because it has, yeah, most countries are still not believing what China and Russia are selling. Significant obstacles include the long-standing China-Russia rivalry, which is uh, sure to inhibit Russia's readiness to promote the Remivi, uh, that's one. Um, second, calls for reform of the international currency uh, system um, do not sit well with the incumbent power, the United States. So they're doing, you know, Washington is going to do everything in its power to stop 
uh, you know, countries rallying around Sino-Russian calls for some kind of restructuring of the international uh, system, uh, financial system that is. Uh, dollar remains the only truly global currency, and this has many structural advantages, hence the exorbitant slash super exorbitant uh, privilege, relative price stability, strong property rights protection, liquidity, breadth, and openness of U.S. financial market also play a role in ensuring continuation of dollar hegemony. Um, and we see over the past decade, the U.S. dollar's reserve role fell only slightly, and the dollar usage in settling international trade has actually increased, even as the dollar's share in global transaction declined marginally last year. Uh, so COVID is, is an interesting situation because, uh, because, yes, I mean, the U.S. economy has done uh, relatively well. Uh, and not only that, the U.S. is, is, is seen as a kind of... A, uh, a safe haven for much of investment. Um, so long-term effects of Russia and China's measures could be big, but then again, they could also fail. Uh, the textbook doesn't go, get into the kind of, as I said, the conditions under which uh, this could fail. Uh, but that's why it's important to look at uh, IP scholars. And speaking of IP on the recommended reading list, I included another special issue, rather forum uh, to global monetary order. This is uh, by scholars writing in the neo-Gramscian uh, tradition. So Italian Marxist thinker Antonio Gramsci uh, is very important uh, for all sorts of theories of hegemony, including his popular concept of cultural hegemony, which reminds us that the most effective expressions of influence are often found in educational, artistic, intellectual institutions. So not simply the marble halls of you know, uh, international financial institutions in Washington, uh, but, but you know, in, in kind of in the cultural space. Um, so on that point, there's going to be an interesting uh, paper that I co-authored uh, on in week four that you will read. In fact, I have a YouTube lecture prepared for you on just this point. In the meantime, if you're interested in neo-Gramscian perspectives, uh, do look at the recommended readings, uh, especially the introduction to the forum in Review of International Political Economy by Nana de Graaf et al. Um, they will give you a different kind of perspective, a different IP perspective on today's discussion. And that's it for today. I do look forward to your reactions um, to the IPE reading or readings. Uh, and yeah, uh, take care and until the next time.